Hello, everyone. Welcome to Obscure Minds. I'm Nix. I'm Jess. And thank you for joining us on this segment of True Crime Cover, where we don't judge a crime by its cover. But in this case, I'm hardcore judging, and I think you're going to as well. Um, I just want to give a trigger warning that this case is violent, and it may be triggering to some, especially people who have children or who have been in a domestic violence situation or stalking situations. I chose this case specifically because I feel like there's some psychology to debate about it, and it covers some things that we think we know a lot about. And it may make us second guess other true crime cases or second guess the guilt of others in other cases. So I found it really interesting and I'm excited to get into it. So on, on January 8th, 2004, Nicole Halpin had just had dinner with her boyfriend, Justin, and her two boys. On her way home, she dropped Justin off at his place and continued home with her boys. When she gets home, she notices Justin IM'd her on the computer. He was responding to an IM that was sent to him from her 15, 10 to 15 minutes prior to that. She replied to him and stated that she did not send that original message and she's going to call him right now. She, uh, she calls him and tells him that she thinks that somebody is in her house. Then at that point, he hears screaming and immediately calls 911 from his other line. While he's on the phone with the 911 operator, he can still hear screaming and commotion going on in the background on his other line. I So I'm not going to give out the address but I'm going to say the numbers of the address. And I'm also not going to give out the names of the kids. They're adults now, or they're old, at least older now, but I'm just, I'm not going to release any information like that. Uh, so he tells the 911 operator where she's located and gives out the address. The address number that he gives is 12. The cops look up the address and then the phone number associated with that address. This is the time and it was 2004. So everybody had a home phone during that time. So you could look it up and it would tell you what phone number is associated with that address. And so that's what they did. And uh, they call the number first and dispatch police officers to that location. The, the cops call the phone number associated with that address. When a young girl answers the phone. There's an actual recording you can go and listen to of her communicating with the 911 operator. And it's it's pretty crazy. Most of this stuff is actually recorded. And you can look it up online when you type in the case of Nicole Halpin. And another interesting fact is that Nicole, she spells her name N-I-C-C-O-L-E. Have you I'll ever seen that. it spelled? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. No. So the cops get on the phone and they ask her if her name is Nicole. She says, yes. They ask if there's been an altercation at that address or an argument of some kind. She says, yes. She says that there is an argument with her father and her boyfriend and that everything is fine and it wasn't that big of a deal. But the cops show up to the location anyways. And at that same time, the 911 dispatcher switches back over to Justin and the, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so the cops find at that address, a girl named Nicole. She was indeed involved in an argument, but she didn't have any kids. The 911 dispatcher on the other line with Justin told him we called the number associated with that address and Nicole did answer and she indeed was involved in an argument, but we think we have the wrong address. Justin says, I think you are at the wrong address as well. Nicole does not live with her parents. She does have two children. So they're trying to figure out what's going on. and after precious time has been lost at this point, the cops realized that they were at the wrong location. 
So it was just a huge coincidence that a girl named Nicole was on the phone with a boyfriend and was involved in an argument at the same exact time that Justin was on the phone with another Nicole going through like a similar situation. And so the cops just wasted all of that time that they had trying to get to the location to find out you know, what's going on. And this whole time they're questioning Justin, like you gave us this address, what's going on. And then poor Justin is on the phone. You can listen to his 911 call and he's freaking out. What's, what's going on. Are you guys there yet? Can you tell me what's going on? I don't hear anything on the other line anymore. So Justin panics and he's searching at his house. He thinks he has an old piece of mail or a card that was sent by Nicole to him. And, uh, it might have her address on it he finds it. And he said the address is actually 15, not 12. So he gave the cops the wrong address. Uh, the cops told the neighbors that they were sorry for the inconvenience and they're actually looking for another address. And it was just a coincidence. They're both named Nicole. When the neighbors said that's Nicole's house, Nicole Halpin, they live three doors down. So the wife freaks out and the husband's like, I'll go with you. I'll show you where their house is located. So the husband of the other Nicole and the cops go running over to Nicole's house where the actual call is, you know, needed to be responded to. Uh, so when the cops arrive to the correct address, they start pounding on the door. The neighbor starts yelling that he's the neighbor. He knows the boys. He knows the boys' names, which I'm not going to say. And he starts telling them, it's okay. The cops are here with me. We're here to help open the door. And you guys can come out kind of thing, like reassuring the kids that they're safe and they're okay. And both of the children finally come out of the house. And they were in there hiding the whole time because of everything that I'll get into that transpired in that home. Um, so the cops gain entry to the house after the children were removed and they find Nicole still alive at this point. They rush her to the hospital and uh, the 911 dispatcher asks Justin to head over to Nicole's house to meet the police officers that are there so that everyone can be interviewed there at the same time and they can figure out what happened. So this is where the story and the timeline starts to unfold. After Nicole dropped Justin off, after they had dinner with the kids, Nicole and the kids drove home. As soon as Justin was dropped off, he got an instant message from Nicole with the letters HB. That's it. Just HB in an IM. And remember, it was 2004. So IM was like the big thing and, you know, instant messaging. <laughs> And uh, he responded to her and said, oh, wow, you got home fast. Can you call me? Because he was kind of weirded out. You know, she lived 10 minutes away from him. There's no way after he just walked in and took his coat off that now she's messaging him. It was odd. And uh, so later on, uh, when they like reflect back to everything that transpired, obviously, this is when they realized that it was only you know, three minutes since the time he was dropped off, that there's no way that she could have sent the message and it wasn't her. So at this point, she sent Justin a message, like we talked about before, and she said that it wasn't her. She didn't send that message. And I'm going to call you right now. She gets on the phone with Justin and says, I have a feeling that somebody's in the house. Something weird is going on. And can you stay on the phone with me while I do a walkthrough of the house? Cause I, you know, you know, that feeling you get where you're like, something's off and she knew. And, and that's when Justin was on the phone with 911 operator and he was kind of freaking out. Cause he's like, I could hear the concern in her voice. I knew something was wrong. And uh, so at that point, when she's doing a walkthrough on the house, Justin said, that's when he heard screaming on the other line of the phone and Nicole yelling at the kids that saying that they need to hide. One child was downstairs when he heard his mom screaming and he was told to hide. As the child was going to hide, he witnessed his mother running back into her bedroom 
where the other child was. And the child downstairs that was running to hide saw a man all dressed in black with a ski mask on carrying a baseball bat following his mother into the room where his other sibling was as well. The child waited until he heard the man leave and then ran upstairs. His mother was laying on her bed covered in blood. He grabbed his brother and took him to the bathroom, locked the door, and told him to hide in the tub with him until help arrived because they didn't know what to do. They didn't call 911, nothing. So they just ran and the kid told them they need to hide in the tub. That Around that time is when the neighbor came to the door with the cops. And that's when they felt like it was safe for them to come out. While all of this was going on, Justin stayed on the phone with Nicole and used his home phone to call 911 because Justin was the one to make the 911 call to report all of this stuff going on. And he gave the wrong address in the beginning, uh, which made the cops lose time to save Nicole and the boys. This made him suspect number one. As you know, as we know, most people who are involved in a crime like to insert themselves in a crime. Yeah. Uh, they like to try to keep tabs on a crime and like to throw the cops like off the scent, so to speak. And I think it's like because they think who would try to call the cops and help with a crime if they were the ones that were involved, right? So I think so, that that's what. Another thing too is how did he get the address wrong by three numbers too? And then have to go look for a piece of mail. Like you're at your girlfriend's house all the time, right? Yeah. Well, he just, he, he thought he had it right and he got confused. And if you listen to the call, um, I don't know, there's something, you know how like sometimes you can listen to things and you're like, this guy is innocent. And you can kind of like tell or he's guilty. You can tell he's genuinely confused and concerned. And he thought he was helping. He called 911 right away. He told them where to go, what the address was. And he just in the middle of everything. And after hearing all this stuff, he just got the address wrong. And I talked to Devin about it too. And he's like, if they asked me what my own address was, I would have to say, hold on, I need to log into my Amazon account and pull up what my shipping address is. He doesn't even know what our address is. So I don't know if it's a guy thing. <laughs> Some guys just don't know or it's not important, but I don't know. I feel like um, that should be important. You know what I mean? I, like in case of yeah. an emergency, I mean, I know my own address. Yeah, I do too. So I, yeah, I don't know. But because of all that, it would make sense at that point why I guess, he like, was... in a state of panic, like, when your your mind goes blank. Okay, I could see that. But... Yeah. I don't know. That's just... I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Continue. It's still... <laughs> well, it's it's very weird. And that's why yeah. the cop, he was the number one sus suspect at first, because they lost precious time to get to Nicole and her kids because of the mistake that he made. And then they wasted all the time at the neighbor's house. And then the cops were kind of like, did he know that another Nicole lived three yeah, doors down? And so weird. Right? So yeah. they're like, okay, suspect number one. And um, it actually, it only took a couple of hours for them to rule him out. Um, They did have a hard time getting over those same details though, which as we just talked about, makes total sense. Um, but they were able to rule him out that he was in fact at home um, when he received the phone call from Nicole and he was at home when the attack took place and it was traced because he was on the phone with 911 mm -hmm. as well. So they were able to rule. One of Nicole's uh, boys had developmental problems. And this was the boy that was actually in the room with Nicole, his mother, hiding behind the bed as she was being beat to death with a baseball bat. The other child was downstairs, and all he was able to witness was the man dressed in all black with a ski mask. 
So they didn't have a lot of details to go off of because it was hard to communicate with the other child that actually witnessed the crime and was there in the same room. When they did interview him, he said that the guy was wearing a wolf mask. But later on, a victim's advocate stated that they think this is from the trauma of seeing his mom being murdered and his brain made up something like scary that he saw that he witnessed to kind of cope with what happened and what he saw. And they said it's actually very common for people who witness tragic events uh, to make up something or almost have their brain fill in details or if something was super traumatic what's the scariest thing to this child and that could have been the wolf so the wolf mm -hmm. attacked my mom you know very very sad and you know you kind of said in your other episode um somebody went through a traumatic thing when they were younger and they just all together blocked it out they don't remember anything mm -hmm. so during traumatic events your brain does crazy things to try to protect you so yeah. unfortunately that's the only statement that they were really able to get from the kid so as the investigation moves forward they rule out the boyfriend justin altogether the next suspect would be the children's father and her ex-husband don halpin at this point they noticed that nothing was stolen nothing else has happened to her and the children were not harmed so she was targeted so it was directly like to hurt her or kill her it was a very clear intention that it was her they were after especially since the children weren't harmed at all and the man saw the child so the child said as his mother screamed down the stairs looked at the child that was downstairs and said, you need to run and hide. She's screaming it. She runs into her room and then the guy steps out of that other room that she was in and was carrying a baseball bat, looked at the child and followed the mother into the room. So he saw the child there. Oh. I don't know about the other child that hid behind the bed that was actually in the room when it happened, but he did see the other child and I, I don't know, you know, I, it's crazy. I, I don't know. So at that point, the cops were like, it's very targeted at that point. So, uh, Don said the ex-husband said that he was at work during the attack, but obviously the cops still need to confirm his alibi. And at that point, the children had to stay with a friend of Nicole's while they tried to rule him out and you know when i heard this i totally understand why they had to stay with somebody else and i respect that it was somebody on nicole's side because if it was the father that did this and then they got to stay with like the father's family that would be kind of like a slap in the face so i do respect them for doing that but at the same time how heartbreaking for those kids to go through that traumatic event and then stay in a, someone else's house even if they knew the person it still is separated from the family that they know after everything they just went through and I was like oh that's just a yeah. terrible situation for everyone so while they were confirming Don's alibi they sent him in for a polygraph test he passed all the questions besides one and the question was do you know who harmed nicole halpin oh gosh so, i know so when he was asked he said you, the cop said look you passed it except for one question so you know who harmed her and he said i have no idea who did this and they said well obviously something's going on they're trying to figure out why he would have failed this one question right so he said i have a gut feeling on who could have done it so maybe that's what it is he then mentioned that nicole and him despite the divorce they were great friends and they would talk about guys she was dating and life and stuff like that. So he knew a lot about what was going on in the people that were in her life. She told him 
that she broke up with somebody named Daniel Welch. She confided in Don and told him that Daniel had been following her. He's even followed her when she was on dates with her new boyfriend, Justin. Oh, boy. And I know. And Dawn said, told her that you need to get a restraining order. That's mm -hmm. stalking. That's not normal. That's not, what do I do? Dawn's like, no, you need to get a restraining order. So after Dawn's polygraph and that information came out, Don's alibi was officially confirmed. He was, in fact, at work. And his, obviously, his polygraph test was completed, and they were able to rule him out altogether. So now the cops have set their sights on Daniel Welch. They arrived to interview him. And he did say, oh, yeah, like, totally nonchalant. I heard something happen to her. My gosh. Yeah. I know. So cold. Right? Like, yeah, I heard, I think he was like, yeah, I, I heard something happened to her. I think I read about it in a paper. That was your ex. Like, at least be like, mm -hmm. what? Like, practice better. <laughs> yeah. Be a little <laughs> bit of a better liar. I'm sorry. I know, right? Jeez. So they, they wanted to uh, interview him. Uh, and they actually went inside at this point. And proceeded to ask him questions like the normal questions about Nicole, about the relationship. And he ends up telling the cops, it just didn't work out. We drifted apart. And eventually we just stopped communicating. He was so stalking her. Yeah. That is yeah. Just, that's a cop-out answer. I Thank you. That's what I said. And he was stalking her and other people saw him stalking her. And that's what he says to the cops. Mm -mm. He, after that, he also said that he had moved on. And he said that he was uh, in another relationship with someone and he was happy. And this someone was named Sophia. Uh, he was then asked where he was on the night Nicole was attacked. And he said he was helping a friend train for a marathon. I, I know this is, it was kind of weird to me, but I mean, who knows? Good for you, I guess. <laughs> so um, he was helping his friend train for a marathon. So I guess they would go, his friend would go jogging. They would meet up at night and it was a nightly thing they've been doing for a while. And uh, his friend would jog and he would ride next to him. Daniel would ride next to him on a bike. And then his friends like training. <laughs> yeah. Good so, emotional support. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Seriously. And yeah. So he said that night that Nicole was attacked, they started around 8 PM and that he was home by like 9 30 PM. After this and he got home, he said he called his new girlfriend, Sophia, on the phone. And it would be later on that the cops would confirm that Nicole was actually attacked at 9.50 p.m. So they asked Daniel to take a polygraph test. He says yes. And after the polygraph was administered, he failed miserably and even when you go and look it up the cops are like he failed and one of them's like he failed Big miserably bold. yeah bold letters yeah Again, bold letters exactly <laughs> so i know so okay so obviously at this point we kind of have an idea of who did it so i don't want to take away from that but at the same time i just like polygraph tests are a joke like i'm mm -hmm. sorry that, that's why they're not even admissible in court. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but if I was to take a polygraph test, I would completely fail, even if I was innocent, even if I had no idea what they were talking about and I wasn't even there. Just because of the- Anybody with anxiety would fail. Just even if you're telling the truth, you would, yeah. you would spike the test and you would, you would fail. Yeah, exactly. So- 
Yeah, but I just, I felt like I need to put that in there because I don't like polygraph tests. I don't agree with them at all, but that's why they're not admissible in court. They're allowed yeah. to bring it as evidence into court to sway opinion, but they're not allowed to use it as like actual evidence. Um, so uh, because polygraphs are unreliable, they had to just let him go. But at least at this point, they knew that they were onto something because there's a reason why he failed everything. He knows something just like Don. Don knew something, even though it was more innocent wise, it still was something that he wasn't honest about, you know. So as they were confirming Daniel's alibi, they spoke to the person who he was training with that night and they were able to confirm that he was in fact with this guy from 8 p.m. to around 9.30 p.m. But Nicole was attacked around 9.50. So they had to go interview the new girlfriend, Sophia. And this is where I feel like things get a little bit crazy because she does confirm that they got a call or she got a call from him that night. But she says it wasn't quite around the time that he said. It was like around 10 o'clock at night, not right when he got home. So that was a little interesting. They found that you know a little weird so she also tells police that she's kind of confused because they're not really together they are not boyfriend and girlfriend and they occasionally hang out sometimes oh gosh and she expressed that she was kind of upset for him dragging her into this mess like in the first place like why yeah. am i even dealing with this my hands are cold hold on she states that when on the call where Daniel called her, that he was completely out of breath. And she actually questioned him, like, what's going on kind of thing. And I feel like that's that's pretty normal. Like if I if I called you and we're on the phone, you'd be like, yeah. are you OK? <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> so. She kind of knew something wasn't right and it was off. And he just said that he was loading tools into his van and then kind of just like grazed over the situation. But wasn't he on a a bike ride with this friend until 1030? No, so 930 is what he said. 930. Oh, 930. Yeah. Okay. So apparently what he's saying is after he gets back from his bike ride, he's loading tools into his van. But this is at 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 10. Yep. Weird, right? Just odd. And the cops found that a little weird too. So here's where it gets like, finally like, okay, this guy's nuts. So when the cops asked her if there's anything else she noticed out of the ordinary or any details in general that don't even seem like they're a big deal at all, just anything at this point without knowing any details about the case at all she said there's one thing that was strange that i remember one time when i was at his house i opened his dresser to grab something and in the dresser was a ski mask so now remember the child said he saw somebody with a mask on and there was just something without her knowing any details about anything at all whatsoever. She said, I found that really disturbing. Like that was weird. And it's something that she remembered. So by the way, I guess my typos picked it up and it said he had a jet ski in his dresser. <laughs> so that's why I'm like, wait a second. Like, that's why I got so thrown off. So I apologize. <laughs> In case you're wondering, I know. So, after all this information, and the cops are realizing something crazy is going on, they want to set up a sting operation and record a call between Daniel and girlfriend Sophia. She agreed. When she made the recorded call to him, she said 
hey, the cops came by kind of thing. She tried to make it like the cops came by and were asking me about what happened the other night. Like, why'd you involve me? Like what somebody would normally do in a situation like that. And he said, well, did you tell him I called you around 9 p.m., right? She said, well, yeah, I did tell them that you made a call. But remember, it was actually closer to 10. And then she said, why were you breathing like that on the phone? Because you told me it was tools, but I don't believe that. And he was like, well, I told you I was loading tools. I've already told you that into my van type thing. So then she grilled him again and said, what about the ski mask that was in your dresser? And he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I don't even own a ski mask. I got to go and hung up on her. Right? Just kidding. Yep. So the cops realized something from this call. So although he didn't incriminate himself like at all in the call, Sophia was going to be their best shot they had to get him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because at this point they were sure like Daniel was guilty and they're going to use Sophia to get him. So they continued to watch Sophia, keeping tabs on her to see if he would reach out again. And also to see if he would retaliate too, because at this point he knows she's working and talking with the cops mm-hmm. and they don't know what else he knows too. So they're kind of watching her to protect her as well. So during this time, they conduct multiple interviews with Daniel and you can go online and listen to them. And some of them are pretty funny because he's starting to get irritated and that's what they were hoping for. So the cops interviewed him multiple times to intentionally put pressure on him, hoping that he's just going to crack. And at the same time, recording calls between him and Sophia. So they're like, if he doesn't crack with us, he's going to crack with somebody and we're going to make this happen. So it didn't. He never incriminated himself. He never said anything at all whatsoever to that they could use um, against him at all. And I think they said it was about two years of this that they kept interviewing him. And he finally, one of his last interviews, he's, I know, one of his last interviews, he's like, I don't understand why you guys keep interviewing me over and over again. There's nothing more I have. There's nothing more I can tell you. This is just getting ridiculous at this point kind of thing. So. I'm going to introduce the hero of the story. (laughs) Her name is uh, Genevieve Myers. She actually works for the police department as a transcriber. You know what that is, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, listen for those. So you know what it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's people who listen to things and then type it out so that you have the text version of it. And a lot of times they do this so that they can have paper copies to take into court. So when they can refer directly on this date and this time you said this, this person responded, all of that fun stuff. So that's what Genevieve Myers did. While she was transcribing Justin's 911 tape, Justin's, the same tape that police have listened to already numerous times, in the background, she hears the words and someone scream, Nicole, calm down. And like I said before, you can go and listen to all of this and it is clear as day. You can hear it. How this wasn't heard before. I have no idea. I know they worked very, very hard on the case and they might've released the cleaned up version so we could all hear it because I did. I know that they had to send it out to somebody to have them clear up and get rid of background noises and stuff. But clear as day, you hear Nicole, calm down. This is when the police department realizes that while Justin was on the phone with 911, he was still on the line with Nicole and his phone was on speaker. Since 911 dispatch records all calls, they accidentally recorded somebody's voice saying, Nicole, calm down. So 
think about all the things that had to line up for that to actually happen. Justin had to be on both lines. The phone had to be put on speaker. There was no other person, per person, <laughs> there was no other person, Justin or the 911 dispatcher talking at the time that the person said those words. And the transcriber Genevieve transcribing the tapes recognized the voice because she had just transcribed all of the interviews with Daniel Welch first. So all of those things had to line up in order for them to be able to hear that person's voice. So luckily, because Genevieve transcribed all of Daniel Welch's interviews over two years of time, you know, doing her thing, listening, when she goes to transcribe Justin's 911 tape, she hears Daniel Welch's voice that she's very familiar with at this point. Mind blown. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Finally, right? I know. So once this was discovered, the police department called in Daniel's sister, played the recording for her, and asked if she recognized the voice. And she said, yes, it's my brother. <laughs> so at this point, the police were ready and they wanted to charge Daniel with the murder of Nicole Halpin. Right. Good. I can't believe the guy got away with it for that long anyways, you know? insane. Yeah. So this is where, I mean, the whole story is just terrible. And what everyone had to go through is absolutely horrific. But this is where in the story I got kind of pissed off. And, you know, it's funny because I see like a pattern with this, how you and I have both been pissed off by sentencing and what they do and what they sentence people to oh drives us me nuts and i know it's going to drive you nuts so uh so because her like her poor children have suffered you know post traumatic stress syndrome and nightmares ever since they witnessed the murder of their mother because of this nobody wanted to make them testify to what they witnessed at the trial and put them through this all over again so they offered Daniel Welch a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of second degree murder of Nicole Halpin and sentenced to only spend 25 years, not the rest of his life in prison. You're joking me? Nope. So uh, Nicole oh Halpin's... My right i was like oh i was so mad <sighs> so right, once Nicole, again our justice system failed there us. you go there you go mm -hmm. so nicole halpin's family members have stated in interviews that obviously they would have preferred a life sentence for daniel welch but they also at the same time didn't want the boys to have to endure like a trial and they actually were evaluated by a psychologist and the psychologist said that it would do in fact do more damage to them mm -hmm. to have to relive that all over yeah so um obviously again so at the time of the trial they were not nine and ten or seven and ten how old were they when everything happened so, uh, the oldest was eight, right? Okay. Six, six, yeah. eight. Yeah. Okay. Some, yeah. Something like that. I didn't get too much into the kids cause I didn't want to give their names mm -hmm. out and everything like that. Yeah. Obviously, I just wanted to know through. cause those years are so impactful. You know what I mean? Yeah. So crazy. Sad. Very sad. So obviously like the family was kind of like from what i got from that you know reading some of their interviews is that they were torn they wanted him to go to jail for life they wanted him to be punished more but at the same time they're like this is the best thing for the kids and mm -hmm. so at that point you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place you know um 
here's another thing is that so her ex-husband, the father of her children, who was the second suspect that was ruled out, um, Don Halpin, uh, he was quoted saying, I think Nicole would be very satisfied that her sons did not have to testify. So that's what he was quoted saying. And the reason why I included that is because for me, that's so like heartbreaking, not only because of what we already know that happened, but because he used the words, her sons. And I, I don't know about you, but after being like mm-hmm. separated from my son's father, any chance that, that he got, he would say, my son. It was never our son, our kid, anything like that. When he would talk to me or talk to other people, it was, you know, my son, my son kind of thing. So for me, seeing that in like one of his interviews shows me that not only did he care for her, like he had respect for her and those were her children for him to like unintentionally be like her, you know, Mm -hmm. her sons. So that was like, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, and it's like, I read that and my like heart dropped. I was like, Oh, so, um, to make this whole situation even worse, Daniel Welch still maintains that he is innocent. And even though he has pleaded guilty and the judge presiding over the case asked Daniel questions. And one of the questions the judge asked is if he's actually guilty of the crime. And he answered yes. But it doesn't end there. Daniel's public defender was quoted saying that his client only pleaded guilty because he knew that they had a strong case against him and he didn't want to bring the boys into it because he has great affection for them. Wow. So thank goodness for the judge that presided over this case because Daniel asked if he could remain in the jail that he was currently in for three more weeks because he was close by his grandfather who was still in the hospital. And the judge responded with, uh, I don't believe he's a person who demonstrates himself worthy of any empathy. Good. Good judge. Right. I was, I was so shocked and I, I literally like, why do you get special treatment after you just murdered a woman in front of right? your kids? I'm sorry. Exactly. I literally put, I was like, there are some good judges out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a just, I don't want to say it's good news, but it's just something that might make people feel a little bit better about this case is that he didn't get a, a want or one of his things that he wanted after being catered to. Yeah. Exactly. So um, he, another little bit of good news in the last bit here is that um, Daniel had to serve prison time for another unrelated charge to do with dealing prescription drugs. And the judge made him serve out that complete sentence before starting his 25 year term. Oh, nice. Good. Good judge. (laughs) So as of right now, he's still currently serving out his term, but unfortunately is eligible for release in August of 2028. Oh my God. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, I wanted to uh, ask you something. So in the beginning... You kind of like, you kind of brought it up before I even had a chance to ask you about it when it was to do with uh, Justin. So it really made me think about how sometimes like as like people watching like true crime shows, or I imagine how cops even are, where you get that gut instinct where you're like, this person has something to do with it. They were in the beginning totally off because they assumed the boyfriend had something to do with it because one, he was with her that night. 
in with the boys and uh that he gave the wrong address he was the person the first person to call in something happened so of mm -hmm. course he would be you know number one so how does that make you feel when it comes to other crime cases that we may have had uh what do they call it like those facts stand what's the word i'm looking for where it's not evidence it's not proof it's circumstantial evidence circumstantial okay. evidence yeah yep so my whole theory is is like even like i like i like to watch a lot of detective type of shows i always thought that like maybe in another life because you know <laughs> i just couldn't do it in this life with like the three kids that i have and just you know you know, yeah the stuff going on i would have been a detective like that would have been i would have loved that um but my thing is is like you can never put all your eggs in one basket for that specific reason it's why you have a you know a chain of suspects and that's why mm -hmm. you have to rule them out yeah. did i necessarily think that justin was you know the end-all be-all no but for good reason they yeah. They did go to him as the first suspect for those specific things because, well, why would he, you know, not have the address correct? But there are those reasons. Like you said, Devin doesn't even know his own address. A lot of people yeah. draw a blank when being asked for specifics when trauma or something's happening and yeah. they don't have those answers. So you can't really speculate that that person is the you know the person of interest and like the person who did it based yeah. off of those facts you know what i mean so that's why you have to you know have those multiple you know like there's steps that they have there to are go steps through. yeah absolutely yeah because it's usually the person you least expect and that's what i've seen in every case and every movie and every story it's always the last person you would ex expect i mean daniel was the last person you you even brought up i know right we didn't even know <sighs> so, about him until the ex-husband you know brought him up yeah and in this case it wasn't the husband the mm -hmm. ex-husband you know i mean i guess it was one of her exes but i mean you know i don't know yeah. oh okay and so one last thing so i wanted to bring up the fact that when daniel welch was interviewed one of the things that he made sure to say to the cops is our relationship wasn't that big of a deal we just stopped talking because we basically we weren't that into it and i'm in another relationship and i'm doing good and i'm happy that's a huge red flag right there to me as, right? a, as a person, just in general, having a conversation with somebody, he was deflecting, mm -hmm. he was deflecting the information. And like, he, that's, that to me would have been like, okay, like psychologically, he, he would have been on my radar from the get go. Had I yeah. been like talking to him first. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually the people that are the most like, um, guilty who get away with it the longest. So he got along with it yeah. or he got away with it for two years. Yeah. Because most people who are like psychopaths for, for instance, or serial killers, they convince themselves that they're not at fault. So yeah. that's why they're so good at convincing other people or, you know, interviewing and not breaking yeah. or not, you know, so I'm not saying that Daniel was a psychopath or a serial killer because he didn't kill more than, you know, Nicole, yeah. but he probably got his story straight and he convinced himself. So he stuck yeah. with it. Yeah. I feel like this case has a lot to do with the uh, domestic violence problems that we have and mm -hmm. like here, you know, and you know, stalking problems. It's huge. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever had to try and go get a restraining order against someone. It's like next to impossible unless they physically do something to you. So I already have to be physically hurt by this person in order or, or and it's, like it's wild. 
Right, it's wild because I've actually had to look into um, a restraining order and the options that you get to choose from are emotional, you know, well-being and like you can put on there like if it's something to do with like, you know, stuff happening like through text messages or emails and all this stuff. But like they give you all these options that have nothing to do with physic physicalities, but yeah. they still don't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah. what's the point of giving those options for a restraining order if you can't even get one? Yeah, exactly. And so, what what exactly qualifies or makes us be able to qualify for a restraining order in the first place? Because even though I had, when I tried to get my restraining order, I had in writing in a text message from this person that he was going to kill me or wanted to kill me. Obviously, it was worded differently, but it was very clear what he was trying to convey. And mm -hmm. that wasn't good enough. And when we went in front of a judge, the judge literally said that sometimes people get angry and they do things that they don't mean. And and I feel like everyone in life deserves one time and one chance. And this is right. your one chance. Until the second time happens mm -hmm. and they actually do do something to you where you're not around anymore. And then it would have just been like, oh, well, my bad. Oops. Yes. Yeah. Like big and deal. then we have, yeah. And then we have, you know, <laughs> shows like this of people saying there were so many signs and this person dealt with this and how come nobody did anything about it? And it's like, well, yep. be, not for a lack of trying. <laughs> yeah. And it's so, so sad because so many people do get restraining orders, but they're literally like pointless at this point. I don't know. It's super discouraging. And if it's well, thank you for you know giving me your insight because I was really curious after because this made my brain like flip flop. Like, wait a yeah. second, <laughs> I feel like I know a lot about crime cases, and this one just made me go, "What?" <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, anyways, that is a uh, wrap on the case of Nicole Halpin, and uh, you know, at this point, I just hope that her sons are doing better and you know even her ex-husband and i hope that all of them are you know being able to heal and move on from all of this because that's just heartbreaking i agree so that is all so until next time <laughs>